Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. We've got a real treat this week, our third program with the great photographer Robert Adams. But before we get to this week's show, a rare mixing of my various professional pursuits. Please consider yourself invited to join the Dark Water Project and me this fall for a free digital colloquium titled Historical American Art, Whiteness, and the Idea of the American Nation. The six-part colloquium, offered every other week from Thursday, September 8th, will present and discuss the field of whiteness studies, a field that examines the development of white supremacy and racism in the United States and abroad, and its application to our understandings of historical American art. Frederick Douglass recognized whiteness as fundamental to the American project in an 1853 lecture, and W.E.B. Du Bois proposed it as a subject of investigation in his 1920 book, Darkwater. Whiteness studies matured into a broad, often transatlantic and transpacific field of scholarly inquiry in the 1970s and 80s. For the full colloquium program, reading list, and to sign up for free, please email me at tgreen at darkwaterproject.org or DM the Darkwater Project on Instagram. It's there at the Darkwater Project, all one word. The Darkwater Project creates an anti-racist art history by revealing and interrogating historical American art's role in the construction of white supremacy. The project was founded by Kelly Morgan and me, and I now lead it. Thanks, and hope to see lots of you at the colloquium. On to the show. The National Gallery of Art in Washington is presenting American Silence, the Photographs of Robert Adams, through October 2nd. The exhibition, a career survey, includes about 175 pictures Adams made between 1965 and 2015. It's accompanied by a catalog published by the NGA and Aperture. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $44 to $65. Adams is among the world's greatest living photographers. His work has looked at the United States, and especially at its stewardship of the West and the people who live there. As I mentioned earlier, this is Adams's third visit to the program. He was previously the guest on episodes number 41 and 227. We'll have links to those episodes on the show page at manpodcast.com. Robert Adams, after the break. Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Andrea Bowers. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles is presenting a retrospective of Bowers' work titled Andrea Bowers. The exhibition reveals how Bowers has combined her artistic practice with activism. Both focus on structural inequities, elevating and celebrating the work of activists trying to create a more just nation and world, and tying present-day struggles to historical movements such as the global labor movement. The show features about 60 works reflecting Bowers' use of mini-media, including drawing, installation, video, and sculpture. Andrea Bowers was curated by Connie Butler and Michael Darling. After debuting at the MCA Chicago, it's now on view at The Hammer through September 4th. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by Delmonico Books in association with the two museums. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $40 to $60. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. On the second segment, our 2019 conversation with Bowers' sometimes collaborator, Suzanne Lacey. But first, Andrea Bowers, after the break. This summer, the Getty Center is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Since the center opened to the public in 1997, the expansive campus has welcomed millions of visitors from around the world who enjoy the stunning architecture designed by Richard Meyer, landscaped gardens and terraces, including the Central Garden, designed by artist Robert Irwin, and world-class paintings, photographs, sculpture, decorative arts, manuscripts, and drawings collections. You're invited to a summer of celebrations, including an outdoor concert series, community festivals, 
family fun, and a special audio tour highlighting the site's history. Plan your visit, view related events, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Women Painting Women, on view May 15th through September 25th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Women Painting Women features 46 female artists who choose women as subject matter in their works. This presentation, international in scope, includes evocative portraits that span the late 1960s to the present. All place women, their bodies, gestures, and individuality at the forefront, conceiving new ways to activate and elaborate on the portrayal of women. The artists highlighted in the exhibition use painting and women as subject matter and range from early trailblazers like Alice Neal and Emma Amos to emerging artists such as Jordan Castile and Apollonia Sokol. Women Painting Women at the Modern through September 25th. And we're back. Robert Adams, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Good to be here. The impetus for this exhibition at the National Gallery of Art came way back in 2012, which is 10 years ago, as we're taping this, back when the National Gallery made a significant acquisition of your work. Why was, and I think is, it important to you for your work to be at the National Gallery and specifically in Washington, D.C.? I obviously am honored to have it happen. I welcome the exhibit I suppose because I'm an American and I love my country, but also because my country is having trouble recognizing its blessings and its obligations. And occasionally what I've done does address those two two difficulties. So needless to say, when we began talking about this exhibit, the country was in quite a bit different shape. So it's it's rather strange uh, to have planned a, an exhibit entitled American Silence and have it uh, finally reach fruition uh, here, but I'm happy that it happened this way. The cover image for the catalog that accompanies the exhibition is, of course, a work that's in the show. It's your 1969 masterpiece, Pikes Peak, Colorado Springs, and it's one of the most famous pictures of the American 20th century. It's the picture that shows kind of a, a gas station mini-mart on the left at night, a, I think, frontier sign on, on the right, slightly cut off at the right, frontier being the, the brand of gasoline with, with the mountain in the background. We'll have an image on manpodcast.com, of course. So I think it's important to place this picture in, at the moment of its making. The Santa Barbara oil spill of about 100,000 barrels worth of oil happened in that very year, 1969, in January and February. And at the time, it was the largest environmental disaster in American history. It was a disaster that instigated the American environmental movement. And for art, it also instigated what we now know as the earth art movement. So what do you remember about making or encountering that picture? And whether, for you, it was an engagement with what was going on that very year? The scene was made about, uh, or, or the scene was about a mile or so north of our home. It was within Colorado Springs. And to tell you the truth, I made the picture for the light. The peak is Pikes Peak, which if you've lived in Colorado Springs, you know that it's a, a thing that is part of your your 
day, every day, and inevitably part of what you think about when you think about America. As we know, uh, Catherine Lee Bates wrote America the Beautiful, having been inspired by getting to the top of Pikes Peak. The curious thing about the scene for me in memory is that I returned to it only a few weeks later to discover that the gas station was completely gone, absolutely scraped off, and uh, apparently in preparation for something new in a city that was booming. I do recall with dismay, shared by everyone, I think that uh, I recall the oil spill in Santa Barbara. I had gone to school in Southern California for a half dozen years, so it, it was familiar territory, though I think I would add that there were so many things in America that had gone awry by 1969, the Vietnam War, assassinations, a whole list of terrors, that uh, the Santa Barbara oil spill seemed like just a fragment in, in an unfolding nightmare, really. You've made a number of, of famous pictures that reference oil and gas. Uh, you know, I don't want to say made in specific response to the oil spill, but but do you remember if the oil spill had enough of an effect on you for you to be thinking about gas stations and, 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 and burning oil fields? It certainly was a part, I think, of everyone's consciousness. And I have occasionally made pictures, as you may know, I've got a picture of a of a sludge pond north of Denver that's on fire, huge column of smoke. So I was aware of it. I I was uh, disturbed by it. I have to also say, though, that by this time, I was pretty well aware of a lot of things going wrong environmentally. When I graduated from high school, the uh, first days after graduation, my father and I ran the uh, Yampa and Green Rivers through Dinosaur National Monument, which at that time was threatened with a dam, and in some ways gave that struggle gave birth to the Sierra Club. So it was all part of a structure of concern, really. As listeners know, I am ever fascinated by the way in the American West we have whipsawed from extreme environmentalism and the birth of the national park idea at Yosemite and, and hyper-aggressive use, abuse, and, and despoilment. And one of the things that I love in your work and value in your work and that this exhibition and catalog are rich with is that even, um, uh, uh, you know, is that your work represents that whipsaw. You know, in every series of work you make, there may be some challenge to the nation but there's also beauty. There's also celebration and joy. You interrogate American mythology even as you celebrate the beauty within the nation's nature. And that's an approach that across your entire career has been so consistent across so many books and projects that I presume it must be something of a core tenet or a conceptual linchpin. Is it? <laughs> it's certainly has been my experience. When we moved out from the East Coast to Colorado, I quickly learned to love the state and got jobs in the summer that took me into the mountains. And But then when I went to school, uh, I drove to California where, where there seemed to be something very disturbing happening. 
so uh, as I would go back and forth between my parents' home in, in Colorado and where I was going to school, it was exactly that kind of whipsaw. And you're right. I try as best I can to find things that are redemptive and even disturbing scenes. Occasionally, this seems to me just beyond my capacity, and that's what's happened with clear-cutting in Oregon. Uh, I just can't find anything in a mountain that looks like it's been nuked. And so, actually, at some point, I've decided not to try, uh, because trying just results in, in lying. But I do try to find beauty where I can, sure. Is there an, an, an origin in a book or a poem or in art to that idea that in every group of work or in every series, there needs to be beauty alongside challenge and revelation? Boy, that's an interesting question. I'm sure, I'm sure it's not my idea. The, the man who is wrestling with this most convincingly right now, I think, is Wendell Berry. Before that, a uh, writer who was important to me was Edward Abbey. Although you've got a, a writer, you're in uh, Asheville, right? Is that yep. correct? Yep. Yeah. Well, you've got a, a writer who is first class, a man named uh, Merrill Gilfillan, was written uh, a lot about wandering the high plains. And he describes some of this uh, yes and no experience. So, uh, and uh, there are poets, obviously, who've done that too. And photographers who are there right now are certainly experiencing it. As you suggest, the West and the Midwest are, are a scene of, of enormous and ominous conflict. I took uh, a lot of pictures on the Colorado High Plains, and I loved it. But now it's uh, a scene that's marked both by, well, the, the primary threat is from fracking, and you can go mile after mile in areas that uh, Sherston and I enjoyed as open country, and it's now just uh, a web of roads and connecting uh, pipelines and the rest with fracking wells. And as you, I'm sure know, what has slowly come out is that the chemicals that they pump down during fracking to, f to force the gas and oil out, the extremely toxic chemicals they pump down cannot ever be extracted. They are their death and, and so that nobody thereafter can trail a well for water for human beings or livestock. So it's a, it, it has been and it remains a, a very mixed uh, scene. One of the things I found myself thinking about a lot as I've looked at your new work, which we'll be coming to in a moment, and as I've reexamined your old work, is the question of your possible interest in metaphor. And I guess I assume that someone who taught English must have some interest <laughs> in metaphor, given that metaphor dominated American culture in the 19th and early 20th century. And I admit I wrote a book about the 19th century American thinker who I strongly suspect elevated metaphor into such a fundamental thing in American culture, Ralph Waldo Emerson. 
But maybe before we talk about some specific pictures and, and, and maybe their relationship to metaphor, I should ask if metaphor is something you consider yourself as having looked for or wanted to construct when you've been out in the land making pictures. I, I've suggested that photography is at its strongest sometimes. It, it, it does achieve uh, a convincing sort of pointing toward toward another subject, as does poetry often. The difference, I think, I suspect, between poetry and photography is in the way it happens. Uh, and I can only speak from my own experience, so I, I may not be right for many people, but I don't set out to create metaphor, to, to take a picture in which the subject is framed in such a way or is tonalities, etc., are, are selected in order to point to another meaning than the subject itself. I take the picture just for what's there, but I find that in some of the best pictures, I seem to have unconsciously selected components of the picture in a way that does work metaphorically. And I think poets do it differently. I think they, they too look at the world and, and look carefully at something right in front of them. But then I think they begin to build the structure of a metaphor. I, I don't think that photographers, at least as I know them, mostly set out to do that. I think they find that at their best, it's happened. But I, I could be wrong. I'm just going on my own. Uh, I think when, in those cases where I have set out to create something that points beyond itself, the result has, has not been good. I'm thinking of a picture I have on my wall uh, down in my workroom where I was walking in, in uh, an area of light industry in Denver, and I looked up, and here was a, a sign that said, uh, something to the effect of elixir industries and in back you could see all this uh, stuff going on and I took a picture and it does still amuse me but it's not a it's not a good picture it's just amusing <laughs> I mean it's amusing even to hear the two words together <laughs> yeah yeah right I mean it was you know it was, uh, who, who could possibly create a company called elixir industries but pictures like the Frontier gas station, which suggests both the, the beauty of creation in relation to American and, and in relationship to American heedlessness, that clearly has meaning beyond just a literal scene. The uh, picture of the woman silhouetted in the window of her home, which I photograph very quickly. Uh, anybody who's photographed in the suburbs know you keep moving because otherwise you get people coming out asking you what you're doing. So I just looked up. I was walking down the middle of the street. I just looked up and saw her uh, silhouetted there, took the picture and kept walking. But it's still, as I finally found a picture on the contact sheet and printed it, it said something about the modern world uh, the combination of 
loneliness, but also the mysterious uh, light in which we all uh, live. To give you another example, the uh, amusement park ride, which was part of the county fair just south of Longmont, with this tilt-a-wheel lit up uh, in front of advancing dark clouds. Again, although I was shooting off a tripod, it was still a a, a picture that was made rather quickly and just for itself. But when I saw it, what I remembered was the medieval image of of the, the wheel of life and death. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down. And, and in this case, the wheel of life and death backed by what appears to be a, a growing, rather mysterious darkness. So, as I say, what I've found in my own work, and that's all I can speak for, is that I don't set out to make metaphors, but that perhaps as a result of seeing more intently than usual or Certainly as a result of living out a search, uh, the metaphor does get registered periodically. It sounds like you're willing to allow them to come forward toward your eye from a contact sheet or while you're in the darkroom. Yeah, yeah, sure. If, If they don't seem too obvious, which is the other danger, of course. Well, and I'm sure this is in the editing, right? I mean, this is in the, in the self-selection and, and deciding what gets out in the world. But I, 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 like, I don't think you, 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 you've done that. I mean, there's a picture that, that, that comes to mind. Well, you've made a lot of, of, of pictures in Southern California. You mentioned a little earlier ago you went to school in Redlands, um, at Redlands. And, and a lot of the Southern California pictures show disaster on the edge of happening, kind of at the top of a cliff. I'm thinking of a work like New Development on what was a citrus-growing estate, Highland, California, a picture just acquired by the Sheldon at the University of Nebraska, which shows a housing development and a row of palm trees pushing right up against the edge of a Southern California cliff, which is clearly eroding. And I, you know, maybe that was, are those Southern California hillside pictures perhaps rare examples of a metaphor? That was, that was recognized on the spot. I have to, I have to say no. But there's another picture taken actually from from on top of that cliff, looking uh, north, and uh, there's a picture of a mountain and a great gouged, uh, eroded cliff underneath it. So you know, California is is full of I, I don't know the landscape for all of its tragedy is is poetic in many ways. Uh, so I don't object to you seeing that that way, but, but I have to admit I did not see it when I dripped the shutter. You mentioned poetry again. You know, that reminds me, um, as we were talking about poetry and metaphor, you know, just American photography matures, you know, within a decade or so of American poetry maturing. And, 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 and you know, uh, poetry becomes you know, so important in, in early to mid-19th century America that every day, practically every newspaper in America publishes one or two or three poems. And of course, photography caught on like wildfire starting in around the 1850s. And it's just kind of, I don't, you know, I don't know if it means anything, but it's kind of interesting to me that they kind of happen together. 
It is interesting to speculate about that. They do share something, I think, and it is a tendency to metaphor and also a relishing of a certain ambiguity. But Todd Papageorge has said something really to the point that Aperture published in an ad years ago. And it said, Todd said that poetry and photography are like blood relatives, but that it's impossible to go much farther, or it's very difficult to go much farther than that in identifying how they share that blood relationship. I do know that just for my own survival, when I was in graduate school, I, for what reason I can't identify in brief, but my main focus was on fiction. And then I taught for eight or nine years. And found my interest in fiction slipping and my interest in in uh, poetry growing. And now I would say that the poetry section of our library is the, the center of, of what sustains both uh, Sherston and me. Another kind of object that exists in a good bit of your work from the 1970s, because they don't exist anymore, are outdoor slash drive-in movie screens. There's a work in the National Gallery show called Outdoor Theater, North Edge of Denver from 1973, 1974, for example. Were the movie screens and those outdoor drive-in screens interesting to you because pictorially they're so dramatic and provide such a major site for light and light things to happen or, or other reasons possibly metaphorical? Uh, yeah, I think the latter. They said something about the way people were living and sustaining themselves and keeping their dreams alive. And it just seemed very poignant to see these these huge storytelling. They, they were poignant, I thought, and, and, and uh, I'm glad they're gone, obviously. But uh, uh, And you're right, they, they were useful in making pictures. One dare not forget that as much as we talk about subject matter, that you still have to put the picture together. And it's a matter of, of uh, working with uh, shapes. Yeah. And, and in the American West, where so many of the available shapes are organic and eroded, um, drive-in movie screens are square, rectangular, and have right edges. I mean, they provide compositional opportunity in extremis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And of course, since the beginning of the American experience in the Far West, the white American experience in the Far West, you know, the West has been a, a projection of of the nature's idea of, of the nation's ideas about itself. And I always think of that when I see those screens in your work. It it yeah yeah it always just kind of gives a gulp to my throat. That's that's a that's a new and helpful way to think of it for me. The kind of last metaphor thing, at least from this period, I wanted to ask about is a picture that I have found myself kind of fixated on since seeing it maybe for the first time in this show. And it's called Basement for a Track House, Colorado Springs for 1969. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a man digging a basement for what is obviously going to be a tract house. And we can see tract houses in the distance between us and the mountains. I mean, the American far west was principally made by mining. It is a region within the American experience 
that was more than any other single factor created by digging things out of the earth. And yet, oddly, that digging, that development is rarely present in American art or photography. And here we have this picture from your from from you from 1969 of, of of digging, and it just hit all of these historical echoes for me. And of course, a metaphor too. Here we are digging ourselves a hole. And I wonder how that picture worked for you, and and whether it landed for you right away, or took a while to to become important to you. No, it it even as I stood there, I think what struck me most was the absurdity of it. Just seem ridiculous. Uh, and uh, Sarah Greeno, I think, uh, has speculated a little bit about what that picture means. And it, it's all legitimate to think that way, I think. Uh, again, I have to say, I'm not sure that as I walked and I didn't want to attract the man's attention, and I was, of course, completely exposed for probably a three blocks in every direction, I had to keep moving. So I just took it and depended on what was what was subconsciously built up in my in my system. But no, it's it's got many implications. Uh, the the construction of houses at that time in eastern Colorado Springs and eastern Denver was just surreal in a good many ways. I'm afraid my next question is completely self-indulgent. I'm, I'm going to ask it as an Emerson critic and scholar and nerd. And it's, it's, it's a picture we talked about. It's about a picture we talked about the first time you were on the show called Sunday School Class, Church in a New Tract, Colorado Springs, 1969. It's the picture that shows a group of people sitting outside a church in the sun with mountains kind of defying the triangular shape of the church's roof. And it's a, it, it's, it might be my favorite of, of all your pictures, and it seems to me very much an upturning of the Emersonian construct of God being accessible to individuals through the experience of nature, because, of course, in this picture, the church and the group rather than the individual is primary, and nature has been rejected in favor of track development. And then, of course, the wall of the church is between all of the people and nature, you know, this reimposition of a European church construct. So this is all a very long way of saying, A, I still love the picture. (laughs) And and B, was or is Emerson and transcendentalism important to you? I'm going to embarrass myself by saying that my acquaintance with Emerson is is meager, but I have found a lot to agree with uh, in reading Thoreau, so uh, transcendentalism is part of my my worldview. With regard to that picture of the outdoor Sunday school, of course, a little bit of it depends on how how much you are sympathetic with or repelled by the Southwest. It's true that the scene is scraped bare in preparation for for development of housing, but it is flooded with high altitude light, which uh, you if you live in Colorado, you either come to like, or uh, as a friend of mine did, she she went into her house and pulled all the blinds off and trying to escape it. When you look at that picture, not only is the light important, but uh, in back of the church, which of course is, uh, is 
barren in the extreme, but in back of it is Cheyenne Mountain, uh, which uh, you probably know holds a nuclear bomb-proof underground series of tunnels that house the North American Air Defense Command. So it's it's a whole knot of of uh, human experience and 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 what we've made of it. It's uh, I don't know what to say more except that it it's many many things in that picture. The light, in fact, is one of the th- reasons I thought there might be some Emerson in the picture. Emerson writes in Nature, his 1836 essay-length book, book-length essay, one or the other, and in his journals often of the impact that very bright light had on him and how for him the brightness of light could be a metaphor for finding God within nature. So, you know, that, that I subscribe to. Cass Clark remarks somewhere that the decisive gift, and it, it is just that, you know, you know, to earn it or develop it, but that a, a landscape painter's decisive gift is an emotional response to light. The Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art presents Maya Lin, A Study of Water, a solo exhibition that brings together a selection of the internationally acclaimed artists' large-scale sculptural interpretations of water. The exhibition features a site-responsive installation using tens of thousands of polished glass marbles that map waterways under the walls and floor of the gallery. Maya Lin, A Study of Water, is on view only at the Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art in Virginia Beach, April 21st through September 4th. Admission is free. Reserve your tickets now at Virginia Mocha. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists working across a variety of media. Through the artist's distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shaped the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents a survey of contemporary art from around the state. The exhibition, Reckoning and Resilience, North Carolina Art Now, brings together 30 emerging and established artists. This group survey, featuring approximately 100 works, presents an expansive view of contemporary art in North Carolina, both in terms of regional geography and artistic approaches. The show includes drawing, painting, sculpture, photography, ceramics, textiles, performance, and experimental video. The artists explore themes surrounding historical and current events, identity, loss, remembrance, trauma, and healing. All works are on view at the Nasher for the first time. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Switching gears a bit, across nearly your entire career, you've been interested in grasslands which is a, a natural magnificence that doesn't quite fit 
the centuries-old American preferences for vast forests and grand topographical drama, you know, like the Rockies or Yosemite. But grasslands are critical lands significant to the history of the nation, but somehow they managed to live very lightly, very, very lightly in American cultural memory. So most simply, why did you start photographing grasslands 50-some years ago? The basic answer is that because I walked there, and that's really the, the substance of it. Uh, I've, at first, it was more or less by accident. And I went uh, hunting with my dad uh, in northeastern Colorado. I stopped the hunting, but the experience of being there uh, stayed with me. And there are many kinds of grasslands that I wish I knew better. Uh, the tall grass prairie, for example, I haven't really explored. But grass is, as you know, is it, it it's remarkable. It picks up light in in ways that grass is like water in some respects, and it picks up light like water sometimes, sometimes moves like water, and it holds answers that are different from trees, it seems to me. There's a Laotian uh, proverb, uh, I think it, I think Merwin translated it, something like, close to death, you, you see how tender the grass is. Uh, lots and lots of, of poets have talked about grass. Uh, the Polish poet Spignu Herbert, if I can think of it, it's, it's, he has a, a line or two, something like, grass that comes when history is fulfilled, and the chapter of silence arrives. It's just a, a I don't know, it's a, profound subject, I think. Uh, I've told Sherston that if I get reincarnated, I'm not going to pay as much attention to trees and I'm going to pay more attention to grass. The, the, uh, I think something that you said in a letter, you, you noted that the, one of the things that I've photographed out here is grass that lies on the backside of dunes away from the Pacific. And it's actually a little different than the grass that I'd encountered before. It's, it has a wonderful richness of colors at certain seasons. And we we took uh, Terry Wiefenbach, the photographer, when she visited here. We took her out to a favorite spot behind the dunes of uh, grass. And then we all separated so that we could learn its uh, voice, uh, each one of us, by being quiet enough. And... After she went uh, back home, she sent us a picture. I think she'd made it by by almost lying down in the grass. And it's, it's a it's a wonderful, rich picture. So the answer to your question is why do, why do I photograph it? I think it's just so lovely to be there, and it has so many secrets. I think the site about which you're talking is on um, Nehalem Spit, which is on the Oregon coast. It's about 40 miles south of where the Columbia River meets the Pacific Ocean. I'll include a map of some kind on the show page on manpodcast.com because it's kind of a, kind of hard to describe exactly where it is and even kind of topographically what it is. Oh, you know what? I'm going to do this better. You described <laughs> what it is in the catalog of the exhibition. And so you know what? I'm just going to quote you. 
You said, the, quote, the Nehalem River flows to within a fifth of a mile of the Pacific, but then turns and runs parallel to the Pacific for two miles before finally joining it. And so the land between the river and the ocean, the Nehalem spit, is low-lying, sandy, and constantly changing. And so these are pictures that, that you know, kind of are from the mid-2010s. As you became interested in, in this stretch of land, which has grasslands in the literal middle of it, in the hilly, sandy middle of it, did it prompt a reminder for you of those pictures and places you'd been in the 60s? Or is it so different it just wasn't like that at all? It's, pre it's pretty different. Uh, it's so small. The grasslands that uh, we've been talking about are in the, the, the high plains with all the space and the, the openness. That, of course, these things on the coast lie just uh, a sand dune away from, from another great expanse of, of flat openness. So in that way, the grass is the same. But the, the Nehalem Spit is its own mini landscape, really. What about the Nehalem Spit attracted you? What, what about it worked for you? A lot of things. On the river side of the spit, there are periodically enormous old stumps from first growth forests where the trees sometimes lived 500 to 1,000 years and then were cut and the entire landscape was denuded to the point where uh, erosion uh, eventually during the winter brought these great old stumps down into the Nahalem River where they floated toward the ocean. Some of them have uh, hove up on the shallows of the river before the river enters the sea. Some of them occasionally go out over the bar uh, into the ocean, and then every once in a while they're brought back onto the beach. And I photographed one particularly, which has been there for about 10 or more years. But uh, it's a, a very interesting landscape. You feel the power of, of both nature and, of, unfortunately, of people. You mentioned those stumps, and I wanted I wanted to talk about them. Your pictures of Nehalem Spit, quite a number of them, feature those those enormous stumps. They're really, I mean, I found that as I looked in the pictures in the book, I won't see the show until next month, that I often read them, if you will, as being stone or stones. They had a permanence in a sandy landscape that read as ancient. And in, 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 in these pictures of yours, I don't know, I, I kept finding myself thinking of pictures you have made of cemeteries, including a 1965 picture you made of a cemetery north of Bethune, Colorado, that's in the exhibition. You've also made lots of other pictures of cemeteries in, in other places like Oregon over many years. Um, there's, there's a cemetery from Bandon, Oregon that's at SF MoMA, for example. So, of course, I got to wondering, am I, I know you love trees. We've talked about it before. Um, is there a conscious or intentional relationship between, you know, visual or otherwise, between your interest in and pictures of cemeteries and the way Nehalem Spit has become kind of, in, in parts, a graveyard for these ancient stumps? I have to admit, I, I, I've, I've looked at those stumps a lot, and but, but I never thought of them as cemetery markers, but it's a legitimate 
uh, way to read it. I think probably the reason I didn't is because I've touched them and I know they're wood, they're not uh, stone, but it's true. I've taken a lot of pictures in cemeteries. Uh, death, obviously, is a fact that we all confront, and graveyards are sometimes uh, compelling testimonies to our meditations. I know, like you, uh, I think about it. I read Emily Dickinson, who thought about it a lot and, and thought about it very well. Uh, she has a poem, you probably know, called, I think it's called The Cemetery. It begins, this quiet dust was gentlemen and ladies. And uh, that picture you mentioned is not the only one in the show. There's a picture of a tiny, uh, hand-cut, amateur but very, very poignant lamb uh, that's been cut out of uh, sandstone that marks the grave of a, I think it's a six-year-old girl uh, in Walsenburg, Colorado. I think that's up in the show, too, which I, I, I like it a lot. So, you know, it's, it's kind of strange. We, people now mostly opt for for uh, a different kind of burial, but it's true. I find I find the record, for example, that that cemetery they were taken. It was a fantastic moment, a long way away from anybody, except one country church about a mile away. But uh, early morning light in eastern Colorado, near the Kansas border, with immigrant gravestones. It's, you know, how can you not be moved by something that that heartfelt? I could be wrong about this, but I think there's one particular stump at Nehalem Spit that you have photographed over and over again. Um, there's a sequence, I think, again, I could be wrong, it, that it's a single stump that is sequenced in your book, Sea Stone, where we see a stump three different times of day with, with the sun in three different places, and then there are, I, again, I think, two different pictures of the same stump within the National Gallery survey. I guess first, is, is, is this all the same stump? And secondly, if it is, why, why does it call you to it? It calls many people, I, I should uh, begin by saying. And Sherson and I haven't been back there for probably four years because of the pandemic uh, and because of our age. But that stump has been... We've walked by it in spring, summer, and fall, and I think maybe once or twice in winter uh, over a period of 10 years. The surf in winter storms pounds up all around that stump, even though it's way back on the sand in, in the pictures. But it takes a terrific beating every winter, and to find it year after year after year still there just remarkable. It's wearing away slowly, but uh, sometimes uh, 50% more of it would be revealed by just the shifting nature of the whole beach because of the beating it takes from winter storms. So just seemed to me to merit careful observation and, and re-observation. So that's why there are many pictures of it. Uh, it's as simple as that. Did you realize on each visit that you were making the same thing differently, and was that important to you? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, to all those questions, yeah. It's a very photography thing. 
Yeah, it is. It is. It's just, you know, I mean, you just, Wesson, you know, said in his day books that, that the photographs began with amazement over subject matter. And that statement was part of my early commitment photography. I found that to be so true. Most pictures just begin with just just astonishment or love of the subject sometimes, and, and it moves from there. But but the initial, you know, every photographer frames up. Uh, I don't know. I, I certainly look through my finder twenty, thirty, forty, fifty times before I find something that uh, makes me want to take the picture. But what you're looking for is just the thing that will astonish you. And so that stump did. I think I mentioned a moment ago that in the book Sea Stone, that stump is sequenced on three successive pages, bang, bang, bang. So that's obviously intentional. But what about sequencing that object across three pictures, which is not something I think you've done a ton over the years, but what about sequencing that object across three pages was important to you? You know, it sounds simple-minded, but it's, it's a fact. I just wanted to, to to say to a potential viewer, please look at this, at this and look with me, if memory serves. I think it was uh, E.O. Wilson who said something to the effect that you could you could spend a lifetime just circling a single tree. And Edward Abbey said something similar. He said, you could just spend hours studying a single juniper tree. And it's that kind of focus and with it uh, quiet that I've found to be the difference between sometimes between being able to survive a day and not. Now that you mention Edward Abbey, I can find a lot of Abbey in those three pictures. So, yeah, well, I, I get it. One of the other things that the Nehalem Spit pictures really brings forward in the mind is is how you've treated horizon lines in your work over the years. In your pictures of grasslands early in your career and of ocean more recently in your career, your horizon lines have tended to be pretty low in the frame, leaving lots of room for light and clouds and humidity and atmospheric happenings and whatever, you know, that kind of thing, um, you know, giving, giving that room in your pictures to happen. And obviously, you know, your pictures of clear cuts and such, which we've discussed on other shows, don't have horizon lines often. But in those pictures that do, in those pictures of grasslands or ocean or what have you, why do you prefer a very low horizon line? The sky is really what defines the plains. And I suppose something of the same uh, could be said sometimes of the ocean, less less dependably. But uh, the, and I'm not too, you know this is a doesn't matter whether you're talking about famous uh, writers or or painters or whatever. They all turn to the sky on on the plains. It, it's also. Putting the horizon line low is also a way, of course, suggesting how, how small we are, and uh, as well as, you know, Simone Weil said uh, 
something to the effect that, that beauty requires us to abandon our imaginary position at the center. And there is some of that truth in, uh, on the plains and, and with a low horizon line. There is also, I have to admit, uh, I believe that God is both imminent and transcendent, both in the world and beyond it. And, uh, and sometimes you feel like emphasizing transcendent. Well, you you mention skies, and I guess with along with photographing skies is photographing air. And the way you've photographed air over the years is really interesting to me. And I'm, and I'm sure some of it is that you photographed the way it was, you know, the way that time was at the place you were on the day you were there. But it seems to me that there's a lot of intentionality in the long vistas in the eastern plains that are made possible by clear air. There's, there are a lot of pictures of the terrifying smogginess of Los Angeles that I remember from my childhood especially on the eastern edge of the metropolis, which you photographed in the 80s. And then in these pictures of the Oregon coast, there's a third thing that's totally different than those other two, and that's the humidity in the, in the air between the spit and the sea. Is this all the kind of thing that I and perhaps we <laughs> you know, see after 60 years of making art? Or is the pictorial quality of air, what's there, something that you found yourself thinking about as you've made pictures over the years? I'm always conscious of the air in which I'm working. The air, of course, determines the quality of the light, which means everything. So uh, you're absolutely right as you distinguish marine air from Southern California, polluted air from sometimes Colorado has polluted air now too, but sometimes it's clear, you know, the Bokoff said that... uh, there's, he'd never seen air as it is in Colorado, except in central Russia. So it's it's the it's the medium, it's the mystery, it's it's, it's the whole thing, everything you listed there. I remember reading when researching 19th century California, people over and over again would mention that they could see. Mount Shasta from Sierra Nevada mountains that were south of Lake Tahoe, which today, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, just like beyond it. Yeah, I mean, just and so I remember as I would read that over and over again in correspondence or in books or in letters or whatever, thinking how remarkable that was and then seeing all of the different air in your pictures and how clear it makes it why you can't see Shasta from Tahoe, the mountains around Tahoe anymore. And that really brought it home to me. Yeah, it's a shame. How are we going to survive if we can't see Mount Shasta? I don't know. Shasta's pretty amazing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, like one of the interesting things about the Nehalem spit pictures to me is that, you know, I can't remember humid air marine air in your pictures really before Nehalem spit? Were you conscious of here closer to the end of your career than your beginning, starting in on something new? Yes. As you can well imagine, uh, moving from Colorado with its uh, elevation and thin air down to sea level, moving from largely urban area to a 
predominantly rural area. Uh, there were a lot of changes. Uh, so yeah, we were. I was conscious of of, of a lot being encountered and challenging me to to be aware of it. It's, it's unfortunate, but of course many of the many of the sins that I was fleeing have <laughs> followed me here. Maybe we brought them. I don't know. But uh, yeah. Every time we've talked, we've talked about trees. So I have two tree questions, <laughs> inevitably. One of the things that I think the show at the National Gallery really reveals or foregrounds is how often you have made pictures of either single trees within a broader system, either grasslands or, or a parking lot in some cases, or, or, or pictures of a, of a small copse of six to eight trees that has survived and thrived within a, a, an environment around it that appears to be challenging for tree growth. I don't know if you're attracted to that situation pictorially or philosophically, but I thought I'd ask. I probably don't know the answer to that. Trees are, first of all, of course, just interesting as trees. And they've interested people who make pictures since as far back as, as when, I don't know. So they obviously carry all kinds of messages themselves. They're human. A good many uh, cultures speak of trees as as being people, which I can perfectly understand. So one of my formative experiences as a child uh, growing up in at the edge of Madison, New Jersey, was my down the hill from us was a thing called a great swamp, which was really just a big big woods. And on Sunday afternoons, my father would propose a hike into the into the great swamp, and we would walk down a, a hill through uh, uh, fields and come to the edge of this huge woods. And right at the edge, uh, there was an old uh, shagbark hickory that was so big, and it was uh, that it, it was hollow. And I was small enough at that point that I could get, by squeezing, I could get inside and sort of look out. So I've loved trees ever since I was a boy. Uh, seemed to be to, to be almost people to me. You, uh, like a lot of other photographers, often photograph part of a tree, not the whole thing, which is to say that the tree extends sometimes in both directions, far beyond... Uh, your photographic frame, so so you're you're photographing just a section of it, and as you know, in my other life as an historian who has worked on some old pictures, I chuckle at that because I know in pictures from the 1860s that artists had to enormously contort themselves and and their cameras to try to show, say, an entire giant sequoia within what is basically a vertical rectangle, but you do it again and again with different trees in different places. And while there's certainly a bit of a sly pictorial and historical joke in so doing, <laughs> I also suspect there's a little more to it than that. Why, why parts of trees? Why cut them off? Just a part of a tree can be compelling, uh, just as a, a, a picture of a human hand or, or a face. And as you say, uh, painters have... have done it relentlessly. So 
I find a single branch of a tree. I've taken, maybe this is what you're referring to, I've taken, looking up, maybe 70 degrees, I've taken a picture of a, uh, often of a a cottonwood limb. And I suppose at some level, it seems human to me. And of course, just, just as shapes, they're, they're enormously compelling and complex and full of multiple meanings. So when I think of a cottonwood branch, for example, I, not too long before we moved from Colorado, uh, in a in a park in Longmont, a city park, suddenly a cottonwood ban- branch fell off and killed a little boy down below. So who knows what mysteries we're looking at. Switching gears a little bit, I recently reread the Smithsonian Archives of American Art Oral History that you recorded with Toby Jurevics. And I noticed that, and, and, and this was an interview from 10 or, or 15 years ago, and I noticed that Lewis Baltz came up a lot. In fact, probably Baltz came up more than, than anybody else across the entire conversation. Baltz is one of the artists about whom I feel most strongly, and to my great delight, He's an artist who other artists have brought up on this podcast literally as much as anyone else. Painters and photographers, it must be said. How did you come to know him, and, and how did he come to be important to you? Lewis invited me to share an exhibit uh, with him very early on. Uh, it was the first gallery show I'd ever participated in down in Laguna Beach, Afterwards, he he helped me a lot by writing a uh, review in Art in America and by introducing my work to Jeff Frankel and to Leo Castelli. Of course, as a, these things developed, uh, we got to know each other. We visited Lewis and his then wife, uh, California. They came to see us in Colorado. We, we shared, obviously, one point, uh, an interest in the subject matter. Having said that, I suspect, and I, I shouldn't speak for him, really, because we never talked about it directly, but I think his vision of life was, believe it or not, even darker than mine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think you're right. <laughs> And as you suggest, uh, he had an interest, a keen interest in contemporary art, and that I do not share. Uh, I try mostly to forget it because it depresses me. Uh, not always. There are some some remarkable exceptions, people who have done important work, but on the whole, throughout my life, most that went under that title reminds me of Gully Jimson's uh, In the Horse's Mouth, his characterization of some picture. I can't remember what the picture was of, but he likened it to uh, to uh, farting Annie Laurie through a keyhole. As I say, there are exceptions. Uh, Via Selman's, uh, Agnes Martin, Perrier, uh, Richard Serra. But they are a minority. Uh, in my view, and probably maybe we've talked about this before, but uh, photographers are, or at least they have been until quite recently, compelled to keep a 
direct engagement with the facts and the challenges and the meaning of life. And those have been, I think, too easily escaped in a lot of contemporary art. Film director Ingmar Bergman said at the time of of making uh, Seventh Seal that he thought art lost its chief motivation when it was separated from worship. And uh, very broadly speaking, I think he was right. Yeah, Baltz's relentless, career-long, nearly career-long engagement with contemporary art is, I think, you know, just one of the most remarkable things of his oeuvre. And it's it's the kind of, it's the kind of sustained engagement that's really hard to find across an entire oeuvre. Uh, and and I really, I, I, I we were talking a little bit earlier about how how important it is to make someone look. And I think it was one of Baltz's ways of making us look and holding our eye once we got there. And I. I don't know. I love that stuff. It is wild to me that there is never wild. I say to me that there has never been an American Lewis Baltz retrospective. That's very true, and I myself would be the first person to to line up at the door because uh, I feel like I lost track of uh, of where he was going when he moved to Europe and and uh, saw only fragments of work. So I hope it happens. Although I have to say that I think the the uh, the condition of museums at the moment, the stresses that they appear to be responding to, make any retrospective of of a particularly white man an unusual event. I want to wrap up with three kind of two or three kind of shorter, quicker questions. And, and we've talked a lot about in this conversation and in others, of course, about the things you have photographed and the things that have held your interest over many years. And, and at times we've, we've talked particularly about Ansel Adams and, and his work and Timothy O'Sullivan and your love of his work. Are there subjects or sites that you have consciously avoided making pictures at because they were there or someone else was there? Not really. But there certainly are places you don't want to go because they've been worked to the point where you don't, you know, it doesn't leave anything to be done. Or so it's it doesn't often happen. Uh, occasionally, on, on Long Island, for example, Northern Long Island, I found myself taking some shore scenes that I couldn't help but but realize were reminiscent of paintings by Kensett. Of course, I've, I've done two or three pictures that echo O'Sullivan's Soda Lake pictures. But I even uh, stopped one time and, and walked around uh, Hernandez, New Mexico. It wasn't dusk, but uh, I uh, wanted to see if there was anything that... that that's one, one of the all-time great pictures for me. It was the first picture I ever bought, and uh, it's still a thrilling picture to look at. What what got me thinking about that was was the Nehalem Spit pictures, which you know stretch across you know two books and this show, and and, and those pictures remind me how for a hundred and uh, uh, here we do with my math again hundred and fifty years American photographers have been making specific geographies their own, and and those photographers starting in the 1860s were picking up from how painters in America had really prioritized the same thing for 20 or 30 years at that point. And that here you were in the, in the 2010s 
putting the Halem spit into American art, you know, a site that just, you know, hadn't really been prominent and it's still going on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's impossible to say what one's own work is going to do. I always remember Ansel said near the end of his life that if any of his work was still in public view in a hundred years, he would be amazed. And I was shocked when I read it, but, you know, everything passes, so who knows. Let's wrap up with this one. You are insistently and relentlessly a Westerner. Um, You live in the West. I myself am am a pretty big Far West nerd, even though I couldn't bear to live there. To take this current show at the NGA as an example... I think just about the furthest west we see in the show is near Kansas City, Missouri. And that single picture is about 200 miles west of any other picture in the show. (laughs) (laughs) And so to twist a phrase, did you ever consider, you know, in the 60s, early on, later, making work from the Missouri East, as it were? Or did it just not hold your interest? I didn't consider it as I... Uh, referred to a while back, I did spend six weeks photographing on northern Long Island, and I enjoyed it a lot. It it brought back uh, my enjoyment of walking in the woods in New Jersey and later in New England a little bit. So, you know, I love the the geography in the East. Uh, What I miss there, of course, is is the openness and the space and the light. So every once in a while, I... I can't remember whether this line comes out of uh, a Marx Brothers uh, movie or maybe Abbott and Costello, but uh, one of them says something that I will just turn around. I, uh, my my sentiments would be, uh, I'd like the East better if it were in the West. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, if I had if I had uh, unlimited time and energy, it'd be fun to to photograph uh, in the East and. Uh, I was reminded of of how little really attention has been uh, not only the East but the Midwest. Uh, I was reminded when I've been looking through my library in an attempt to get it under control. And uh, Aperture and the Chicago Art Institute back in the 80s published a catalog for a show that they had. It was wonderful. It was called An Open Land, Photographs of the Midwest, 1852 to 1982. So, you know, there's a lot to do. That's the great thing about photography. You know, the the subject, if if you're committed to, to really paying attention to the subject, uh, it, the subject keeps changing, and so it never gets dull, really. So uh, next time around, uh, we'll, we'll uh, try the eastern half. <laughs> Robert Adams, it's been a pleasure and an honor, as always. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.